1: Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number St. Louis, 314. So a couple of things that we wanted to cover today, a lot of them uh, retirement plan related Two articles that I think we ought to focus on. uh, The first one was article in the Wall Street Journal about the mixed case for private equity in retirement plans.
2: Yeah, I think both of the things we're going to talk about today fall under the is it necessary umbrella and this article in the in the Wall Street Journal about private equity in retirement plans is a perfect example of that. I don't know if it's necessary and I think they said there's a mixed case but the article seemed to make more cases against it and I I agree with all of those cases. Uh, There's just it just doesn't feel like there's a need for it and I I think it uh, will confuse a lot of investors more than they need to be.
1: One argument for uh, in the case for pri- having private equity in retirement plans is that the number of publicly traded companies has shrunk quite a bit over the last twenty years. Um, more companies have found that it's a little better or more convenient for them to operate with a few limited number with a limited number of partners in terms of having private equity rather than go public and have to answer to shareholders every 90 days about their quarterly earnings in the past quarter and what they see for the next quarter or quarters ahead.
0: Yeah, I, I think the big argument for is that, you know, regular investors are somehow missing out because these companies aren't coming public or, uh, you know, that, that their returns could be improved. But, but saying that, that private equity can do that, that's such like a, a blanket thing because we think of private equity – I mean, there there are a million different types of private equity funds that w- all sorts of different objectives. So, like, we obviously think of all the wildly successful non-public companies that, that we could think of off the top of our heads, like companies that have done later gone on to become public companies. But, you know, people couldn't get in at the ground floor unless they were an accredited investor or had connections somehow or had enough money to invest in a private equity fund that had exposure to them. But to say just a blanket statement that it's going to, like, give people uh, a fair crack at investing in, in, in profitable stuff. We, we don't really know because you don't know what you're getting exposure to. And, and people aren't really going to know anyway because the way that they're describing doing this is by just injecting them into target aid funds in retirement plans. I don't know. Again, another blanket category that you could make a, a ton of cases for or against that's become very widespread in the last
1: decade Let's I call it. I, I don't want to get too far off the reservation. But when you talk about target date funds, there's there are different approaches. And you'll find that the mix from one family of target date funds to the next, their asset allocation can be pretty different.
0: Their fees can be super different too. Uh, just, just in terms of because it's a fund of funds, you're getting you know, a pre-made portfolio. So you, yeah, I mean, depending on what they're using, they can be expensive, they can be cheap. The reason they've become so popular in general is because in the last decade, more and more retirement plans have okayed them being the default investment option. So like when you get enrolled in your company 401k plan, instead of sticking the money into a stable value fund or cash, basically, they put you into a target date fund based on your age, which I think is very useful for people because if they were just sending deferrals in to sit in cash, I think that's useless.
1: And that's the way it was for for decades. And a
0: lot of people don't touch these things. And so rather than have the money just sitting in cash and then you find this out five years into it because you were busy doing your job, at least at least you have generally appropriate investments. It doesn't mean it's tailored for for your needs, for your situation or risk tolerance. Could definitely be improved upon, customized, but certainly not the end of the world either. I, th- I think it was a step in the right direction. But now they're, as we've said, these, these things are all very different. And so some of them are going to have like a little slice of private equity yeah. uh, injected into them. And
2: I don't know. Yeah, I think a lot of the cases against private equity in retirement plans is that there's a real lack of transparency. People won't necessarily understand what, they, what they're getting themselves into especially if it's kind of just shoved under the wrapper of a target date fund. They don't even know that they're paying or there's there's fees baked in with a private equity fund that are higher than usual. And these are private funds. Like, they don't have a responsibility to report much of anything. But this if- is a... Uh, a seven, almost $8 trillion market, I think private
1: equity wants to, you know, start tapping into. Yeah. Like there's a
2: lot of... There's a lot of upside for, I think, for private equity to get into the retirement plans. I just don't know if there's a lot of upside the investors need to jump in on. I feel, I feel like there's the allure of, oh, it's private. It must be exclusive. Like, I, I can't have access to it. It must be good. And then if, if that's allowed in their in their plans people might think that they're getting in on something that is special or will help them outperform. And I don't know if that's the case, especially once you take the fees into the into account.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that I don't think I've seen any evidence that would suggest that private versus non private like you there's no definitive evidence that proves that it would be better for returns for people. That's nonsense if anybody says it would be. But one thing that we do know for a fact is indicative of future returns is high fee versus low fee. Yeah. And so if we're talking about something that on the whole is going to raise expenses for investors, which I would imagine this is going to, even if it's some cheaper version created by somebody like a Vanguard or a Fidelity, maybe it's not a two, 2% two and 20, uh, 20% of profits kind of fee, maybe it's something lower than that. But if it's raising the fees that are baked into the 401k menu i would imagine that that's going to be a drag on returns moving forward and that's not a good thing we've been we've been moving now for a while in the direction of lower fee 401k's making some progress this would be a I mean, step there's been,
1: backwards there's actually been a lot of litigation
0: yeah and there should over fees and, and, and there should be yeah, yeah i agree yeah.
1: and so just to clarify something that brendan just said private equity space venture capital space hedge fund space typically operates on what they call a 2 and 20 basis. Do you want to just explain what that means a little bit?
0: 2% management fee regardless of what the fund does and then 20% of profits above some sort of benchmark that they that they set versus like 0.5% of
2: half expense percent. for like yeah. a uh, mutual uh, uh, fund for a, for a regular standard, you know, plain vanilla index fund.
1: That you're going to find in a 401k menu now. And yeah, they
2: gave, no. I mean, they only gave one one example of private equity returns versus non-private uh, over the last decade. And it said um, that the private equity, the U.S. private equity that they were measuring over the last decade had an annual return of uh, almost 14.5%. And then the, the total stock market index that they were measuring from... This was the Wilshire... Uh, the Wilshire yeah. 5,000, right? It it averaged uh, about 13.5%. So it was lagging the private equity funds by 1%, but then you bake in the fact that they're taking 2% for well, private equity and 20% still, of profits. Like I don't think that's a good it.
0: measure anyway, because you can do the same thing for hedge funds, and an index return of the universe of hedge funds or private equity is nonsense, because we don't know which one you're getting, right? right. So you're not you're not getting an index of these returns. You're getting like one of them. Yeah. And if one of them is going to make itself available to public investors, uh, I I just I don't know. My guess is that you're getting the table scraps from like the really good funds. So you're not getting I, I exposure to the best private I, equity. I was fund. just going to go there yeah. too.
1: I, I I really am skeptical that the offerings that are available in a, a large retirement plan are not going to be some juicy options. Your funds getting
0: getting like the series D offering from like a company you're getting like the fourth and fifth round of funding
1: for a private company. You're not an A Mm -hmm. level investor in Twitter or Uber or a company like that. I mean, they they,
2: said in the article that there's two, I forget, I didn't write down the names of the firms, but there's two private equity firms that have funds that are ready to be deployed into retirement plans and neither of them report their returns. Right. Great. So yeah. like, I think how this do you is, even know if you're getting what you're paying, you, for?
0: you hit the nail on the head, though, before I think this is more about these companies getting exposure to a big base of capital uh, as as opposed to like what is I just don't see what the upside is for the average investor. The here, investor, Right. Especially, especially if you're sneaking it into a target date fund, they're not even going to appreciate the fact that it's in there. Yeah. It's just yeah. going to be snuck in there and somebody else is going to be leeching more fees off of the fund that, yeah. you, that you're that yeah. you not even paying attention attention that, to because it's a default yeah.
2: investment anyway. Like is that small portion of the target date fund that's invested in private equity even going to like move how the much is, that yeah. much for the investor? Are you going to gonna be able to
0: retire sooner because
2: because of that? Yeah, because there's like no. a 15 percent private equity sleeve and your target date fund? Like? Well, I,
1: I also think that, you know, they, they have to be cagey in how they get this into these plans. And burying it in a target date fund is probably the most clever way to do it. Especially be-
2: because private equity funds aren't necessarily liquid investments. Right. So they have to put it in something like a target date fund that could be, that is more liquid.
1: So when you get retirees who are, who are now in the the phase where they need to take distributions or required minimum distributions, they probably have very, very little exposure to something like this. Their exposure, if they're in a target date or life cycle fund, it's going to be mostly bonds.
0: But no, it's a good point because when you're talking about inflows and outflows, private equity isn't necessarily receptive to the idea of outflows. But if you got people invested living off their money, they're going to be taking distributions and they need access to their capital, which is like the antithesis of private equity. But if you sneak it into a target date fund, it can it can suddenly be more liquid, uh, but it can't be a standalone option or it would be tougher to like we've seen a couple examples of um, I'm thinking of like an insurance company in particular that runs a real estate version of this, which is kind of private equity, you know, esque. and you have uh, gated uh, ability to access the capital, and you just need to know that going in, and that's that's more complicated to run. Sure, it is. You, you could only get back a certain percentage of your investment in the fund per calendar quarter,
1: or something like that, or they can just straight up tell you, like, no, not now. <laughs> I have this sneaking suspicion that private equity world may not enjoy, even though they it's the it sounds from the gist of the article in the Wall Street Journal, it sounds like they are really foaming at the mouth to get a piece of this almost $8 trillion 401k market. I don't think they're going to enjoy doing that because I think they're going to be open to more litigation over fees, more disclosure. They might as well just go public. They're going to find out, wow, this really isn't the party that we thought it was going to be. Yeah,
0: I just, I don't know. I, whenever I try to understand why something like this is happening, you just try to, try to understand, like, the reasons why it would occur. I can't find any of them, so I'm just trying to think along the, inli- the lines of incentives. Like, somebody is obviously making a ton of money when this happens, and that's, that's why it's going down. Like, there's, I don't see a clear-cut benefit for the end user of of these funds so somebody's making a big big profit off of this
2: it just seems like the the article made the point and i kind of agree with it too like this came on the heels of you know allowing certain types of annuities into retirement plans uh because they wanted to get exposure to the the eight trillion dollar retirement plan pool and now private equity wants to get in and they made the case that that's going to open the door for hedge funds and it's just like all of these high fee, complicated kind of shady, not shady, but not transparent investments that just fall under the, I, in my opinion, not necessary for retirement investors. They're all trying to like break down the door and get in so they can all grab a piece of the pie. Yeah, there's and a kind of so it gets easier and easier every yeah. time they want to get in. And it just feels kind of sleazy to me. Like <laughs> these people are planning for retirement. They don't need your two and 20 hedge fund and private equity funds in there, like taking some of their money.
1: I think the, I, I, I unless this all gets fleshed out a lot more than we're, where we're at right now in the middle of 2020, I really believe that there's going to be questions moving forward with private equity in retirement plans and annuities about the fiduciary level of trust that's being administered by the plan trustees yeah like if if these are allowed in the plan it doesn't it doesn't necessarily
0: mean that the people who are overseeing them are going to say yeah let's do it right. right right because i think as you're alluding to they're they're probably taking on some risk even even if it's been okayed by the regulatory uh, authorities Absolutely. it's like eh, yeah yeah that's that's nice yeah. but like i don't i don't want to personally uh you know put my neck on the line for that because i don't i don't feel like it's a great idea for the plan so maybe you yeah. know yeah, maybe the stamp of approval doesn't mean much moving forward. Maybe the people who are going to be the gatekeepers are doing a good job, but we've also seen that in the past, uh, you know, the the revenue sharing nonsense and the whole 403B space. I mean, people
2: will let a lot of pretty egregious stuff happen in these retirement plans. So I, I, I don't know. I think when it, for me, when it comes down to it, it's like, okay, who is, if you had to pick, who is this benefiting more? The, the, the funds getting into the plans or the investors investing in these funds? And I think it benefits the private equity funds more than it does the investors. So I don't think that it's right.
1: Well, Tim, you teed up a perfect segue a moment ago for the second article with the annuities, and we ran right over it. Sorry about that.
2: No, I was going to say, I, even with what I just said, like I, I don't think it's right. And Christine Benz wrote an article about if annuities are right for you. Annuities seem to be a hot topic among advisors and people in the industry on whether or not they're actually valuable for clients or, you know, the merit that they have. But, you know, she she walked through a few questions that people should ask themselves to determine if an annuity is actually right for you, because there there are a couple of cases where it does make sense for people. They're not all bad. This was a good framework because, again, like private equity
0: or hedge funds to just say annuities bad or annuities good is is nonsense because yeah. it's it's such a broad space. There are specific kinds that I care for and don't care for. I kind of tend to fall uh, along the same lines as Christine Benz here uh, with the opinions. Like one of the things we're talking about here is like, are, are these things a growth vehicle? In my opinion, uh, no, not in, not, in and all of our
1: opinions. Yeah, no chance.
0: Not a growth vehicle. You know, yeah. like she kind of just ran through a couple of things here. So that being one of them, like I think that in most cases, the type of returns you're going to get from an annuity type vehicle with all the riders and fees that are baked in, you're not going to get stock returns. You'll probably get something more similar to bond returns. So as a growth vehicle, not the best, and especially not the best, if, you have for, if you're have if you investing in an annuity, having foregone the opportunity to put money into like other tax deferred areas in the first place. Because okay. another reason would be, Hey, I need to defer some taxes. I make a ton of money. Like I don't wanna I don't wanna pay taxes on my uh on my growth along the way. Like, what else can I do? I max out my retirement plan at work, you know, I I can or cannot send money to an IRA. Like what else is there? So you could arrive at an annuity. I would argue, depending on on the need to access your money over over a period of time, like you know that that comes into the question. Uh, but you, you could you could run a portfolio that just doesn't have a lot of turnover and and you keep it a lot simpler than going with the annuity wrapper for tax deferral. You could just run a tax managed brokerage account instead.
1: There's so much to unpack uh, when we start talking about annuities. I think inside retirement plans, annuities make sense for some some cases.
0: We'll specify what kind of annuity okay. you're talking about. So
2: I'm talking about, and like their, their plan for retirement, not within their retirement account. Right,
1: right. right. So I'm talking about an immediate annuity, not a, not a deferred annuity. Here's how we can take your lump sum of money and turn it into a stream, an even stream of money, not going to be impacted by the markets whatsoever for the rest of your life and maybe over yours and someone else's life. Works works like a pension or social security. Works great.
0: Maybe you want to do it with a portion of your money. That's so right. So that you know, hey, I've got social security that throws off X, I'm gonna buy this annuity that's gonna throw off Y and then the rest I'm gonna make up from the investments that remain liquid outside of right. those things. Yeah.
1: These annuities, they're good for some people, but do we need to see billions and billions of dollars going into these products every year? Probably not. It just doesn't make economic sense for a lot of people who are buying them, especially inside retirement plans and they're buying them with the idea that they've been sold as a growth growth vehicle. Well. So one of the other things that I have a big problem with, so the box
0: we've just checked there is if you need a steady income and you want to make sure you don't outlive it, you can make a deal with an insurance company to get an income stream, like you just said, over a lifetime or joint lifetime. Check. You can do that with an annuity. That says nothing about growth or anything like that. I think a lot of people get talked into buying these things because the promise is that you don't have to deal with market volatility, that you can somehow grow your money without being subject to any volatility in the stock market, which is total bull crap.
2: Upside, and no that's, downside. That's yeah.
1: false, just the outright lie. Right.
0: The important distinction that I would make is that you're not going to get stock market growth. You will pay dearly for not dealing with the volatility. If you don't wanna have volatility and you wanna sign up for a deal so that you have a, a capped downside, you're also going to have a capped upside and the insurance company usually has the rights to change the rules along the way. So as I said earlier, what you end up getting is something something in the realm of returns you might have earned in a bond index fund right. over time. So if you're doing this with all of your money and you need stock-like returns to, to meet or obtain goals in the future, you need to deal with the stock market volatility to get there. I'm, I'm sorry to tell you that. There is no way around it, no matter what anybody trying to sell you. A bill of goods has to say. Like so
1: it's it's amazing to see when you step back and see that you're going to earn bond like returns.
0: And have no access to your
1: money. And, and and have no access to your money. But to get those kind of returns and to see how detailed some of these contracts get with gee, should I lock in the eight percent cap upside on the NASDAQ? Who cares. The rules
0: are set up to benefit the insurance companies so that they can turn a profit. This isn't a charity for them. Right. So they make these rules and then you have to read a book that looks like The Hobbit or like one of the Lord of the Rings books. It's like 4,000 pages with tiny print. You have to read the rules and all of them are different
2: and none of them are good for you. I think the annuity that Tom described and that you described that is appropriate for people is very simple. I mean, you described it in 30 seconds, and it was very clear. As you get more and more complex down that line into the equity indexed annuities, you know, variable annuities, all these different things with all these different rules, to me, it just becomes more and more unnecessary. So that's where I kind of draw the line in terms of which annuities are actually useful and which ones are sold as useful and end up being not as useful as they were made out to be. The insurance companies, basically we're talking about- Because the annuities do exactly what they're designed to do. It's not like they don't work. They work exactly as they're designed. It's just people don't understand how they're designed or they're not explained in in a clear manner when they buy it.
1: It's unfortunate because we have to oftentimes explain to people who are three years into an annuity, four years into an annuity, an annuity they bought somewhere else. A deferred annuity, usually that's, that's supposed to be a growth about. kind of investment, right? Right. And you know now they can't even get a phone call back from the person that sold it to them, and or that person's moved on, and they can't get any answers to the to this. And we're the ones that kind of have to pick up the pieces and explain this to folks. So okay, this is what actually happened, and this is what is going to happen, your, you know, your prison
2: term will end in five more years when the surrender charge ends. And Here's another, what you actually bought. With a tax right. bill. For me too, in terms of liquidity, I mean, for people, if, if they need that money at all within the next three, four, five years, like this and any type of annuity with a surrender charge is absolutely inappropriate and they should run away. Like so, if liquidity is a big concern for you, most annuities are probably not something you should be looking at. Usually people haven't considered the idea
0: of if it's a deferred annuity that's supposed to grow for them. They're not sure because the point is so long into the future. They're not sure if they even would want to annuitize at the end of the growth period, whether you right. know we're talking variable or equity index annuities here. So if they don't know that and the growth in the, in the annuity sub-accounts or whatever we're talking about here is based on them annuitizing at the end, giving up that pool of money, and then collecting an income. A lot of them, they bought it because they thought it was market upside with limited downside kind of product. And what they're finding out is that that is only true if they play by the rules for longer than the surrender period. And then they also want to turn over all of their money to the insurance company to collect it in a monthly income. Like they can't take out lump sums. They can't take out different amounts if they want to do something different one
1: year versus another year. They've basically taken those investment dollars and they've turned it into a a pension, a future pension payment, Mm -hmm.
2: um, which may or may not be what they had in mind. Right. Assuming that they annuitize, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think if, if you don't plan or if you buy... An annuity, you should 100% annuitize it at some point. Yeah, you know and if I you mean? don't, like, that's it, yeah. If yeah, you don't, then what did you? Why even did you buy get into it? this thing? Yeah. Right, yeah. and right. that kind of speaks to what you just said. Like some people don't even know if they want to right. annuitize it at, at the end of end of the line. We've got and, people in
0: their 30s, 40s, 50s who have 10, 15 years minimum before they would think about collecting money. So to them, the idea of having to know whether or not because you need yeah. you need to decide. Now, you know, am I going to Before turn this decide. into an income stream yeah. in the future? And if you're not, then you have to consider why you're in it, like what you're saying. Yeah. So
1: A lot to unpack, as I said earlier, um, these types of topics raise a lot of questions. So if you've got questions or you know someone that owns an annuity, they're not really sure how this thing works, definitely share the link to this podcast with them or have them call us. And we'd be happy to walk them through what their, what their money's tied up in. That's going to wrap up the St. Louis episode, episode 314. Thanks again for tuning in. And we will catch up with you in Syracuse. Breathe.